0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 1. And then right after I ask you to do that, I'm going to take you somewhere else. When the writer of the book of Hebrews was reflecting on the grave problem of sin in this world and the possibility of rescue because of the sacrificial life and death of Jesus on behalf of sinners, he described the fate of those who reject the truth of God and His way of deliverance. Here's how he described them. He says in Hebrews 10 verse 26, for if we deliberately, deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. All that remains is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, Yahweh will judge his people it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A terrifying thing. And Paul understands that. He understands that he also must reckon with that terrifying prospect even as he has brought us the good news of God's righteousness. Watch his progression of thought here. From what we studied two weeks ago in Romans 1 16, I am not ashamed of the good news because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed. We learned two weeks ago that God's righteousness is a divine attribute. It is the absolute rightness of God, that it is an activity. It is his rescue and deliverance of sinners from their sin, and it is a status. It is God's conferring of his righteousness upon us, granting us a right standing before Him, But the very idea of rescue demands an understanding of why that rescue is needed in the first place. In other words, there is yet something more that is bound up in God's righteousness. Something on the other side of this coin of the good news. I love how one author imagined a conversation with Paul in this regard at this point in his argument in Romans 1. Paul, I am not ashamed of the good news. Why not, Paul? Because it is the power of God for the salvation, rescue, and deliverance of everyone who believes. How so, Paul? Because in the good news, a righteousness of God is revealed. That is God's way of justifying sinners. But why is this necessary, Paul? Because the wrath of God is also being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But how have people suppressed the truth, Paul? Well, we need to stop there because we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Because what I need to under, you to understand before we continue is that Paul is about to make a sustained long and complex argument from chapter one, verse 18, all the way to chapter three, verse 20. He is going to make a case for the wrath of God against all humankind. And he sees the need to do that because he just brought up in 117 the righteousness of God. That's something that he's going to return to all the way in chapter three, verse 29, 21. So it's bookending this entire argument of what is opposed to the righteousness of God. In other words, why is God's righteousness needed? Why must it be applied to us? What is the problem that it is solving? And the problem is God's wrath against our sins. And Paul needs the Romans and us to see that in the same way the good news tells the story of the righteous rescue of God for everyone who believes, it also tells the story of the righteous wrath of God for everyone who disbelieves. And we have to understand this whole story because if we do not understand the depth of our problem, we won't be moved to a desperate longing for God's grace. And how, if we are to have any hope, we must come together humbly under God's grace and see and accept how needy we are for the reality and righteousness of God. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. So here's the thing, all right? I need you to hang with me and Paul because this is a tightly constructed argument and it is a long argument. and so it's going to take us four to six weeks to make our way through it. All right? Are you ready? Can you hang with me? Yeah. So did you receive a service guide when you came in this morning? I hope you received a service If you didn't receive one, get one on your way out because in that service guide, I've given you the four major movements that I think happen over this argument. You'll see them there if you have it in front of you. Paul is going to address a depraved Gentile society. In one eighteen to thirty-two, critical moralizers in two one to sixteen, self-confident Jews in two seventeen to three eight, all the while building to a climax of indicting the entire human race in three nine to twenty, and each step, step will build upon the last. It is really a brilliant argument. But to see it, we're going to have to work together and we're going to have to read it together. And so I need you to do something for me. I need you to keep reading chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20 every week. Okay? You have homework. If this time is going to be fruitful for you, you can't just rely on this time. So you need to read it throughout the week. It will take you about 20 minutes Even if you're a slow reader, only 20 minutes to read, pray, and that gives you three extra minutes, because it really takes you about 17, gives you three extra minutes to write a few things down. So grab a piece of paper and a pencil, a journal, if you do that, and, okay, so is that too much to ask? 20 minutes. I don't think so. All right. Well, let's pray again, because we need God's help. Father, would you please send your spirit powerfully upon this place right now so that he would illuminate our minds to see and treasure your righteousness displayed in both your right rescue for those who believe and your right wrath for those who reject you. And in this, please, Father, help us to see and to treasure you. Yes, and very amen in Jesus' Righteousness conferring name. The first of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. John Stott, to be sure, some people insist with great bravado that they do not need God. But if sin and guilt are universal, as they are, we cannot leave people alone in their false paradise of supposed innocence. The most irresponsible action of a doctor would be to acquiesce in a patient's inaccurate self-diagnosis. To let the patient determine... How many wives just looked at their husbands? (laughs) What did he say to do, dear? Our Christian duty is rather through prayer and teaching to bring people to accept the true diagnosis of their condition in the sight of God. Otherwise, they will never respond to the good news. One of my favorite quotes of all time that John Piper used to say is actually from his father. It isn't, and and he said this, it's not difficult getting people saved. What takes a tremendous amount of difficulty is getting them to see that they're lost. Once they see that, They're desperate for grace. And that is our job, is to help people grow one step closer to Jesus to see their need of him And Paul shows us the way, family. Paul shows us how to help people see that they are lost and without hope in this world, without God and his son, Jesus. Paul gives us the lenses that we need to put on the eyes of unbelievers around us so that we can help them make sense of the world in which they live, the problems they face, the oppression they suffer, the lies they are believing, and that the only way forward is to see and admit that their salvation and rescue can alone come from God from a righteous God. And it all starts with addressing their denial of God. Verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We must never lose sight of this fundamental reality and truth. The problems of humanity due to wickedness and sin flow from our godlessness. From a rejection of the reality of God and his instructions for what it means to look like to live a life of flourishing, to obey his standards and guidelines. Which means that the answer to those problems is is an acceptance of the reality of God and a Godward orientation that is marked by living according to his instructions and guidance so that we might indeed experience a life of abundance and flourishing. And when humankind denies God and his ways, they then turn in their godlessness upon each other. And all of this happens because of their unrighteousness, humanity suppressing the truth. And it is this suppression of the truth that God is, that God reigns, that in his rightness, he is the standard by which we are measured and judged in how we live. That, all of that, brings the righteous response of the wrath of a rejected God. But we might ask Paul, how how have they suppressed the truth paul so why is god justified in responding in wrath listen to paul's answer and i'm going to give you eugene peterson's paraphrase in the message on verses 19 to 20. the basic reality of god is plain enough open your eyes and there it is taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his divine being. So nobody has a good excuse. You know, sometimes I believe that we need to come up with complex apologetic arguments to convince people of the existence of the creator. And while such arguments have their place, Paul reminds us again of this simple declaration that we should turn to again and again and again without apology. The basic reality of God is plain enough. Look around, open your eyes. There it is. There he is. Listen, lost people are around us are suppressing the truth and they are under the influence of the God of this age who has blinded their minds to see truth, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But take heart because God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized when one views the created world. Would you like some proof? An atheist surgeon wrote some years ago, I am filled with the same awe and humility when I contemplate something of what goes on in a single cell as when I contemplate the sky on a clear night. The coordination of the complex activities of the cell in a common purpose hits the scientific part of me as the best evidence for an ultimate purpose. He knows that and he says by this quote, I'm working to suppress it. Or how about the writings of secular anthropologists who have found a worldwide moral sense in human beings so that although conscience is of course to some extent conditioned by culture, this worldwide moral sense testifies in their language, testifies, witnesses, to everybody, everywhere, both that there is a difference between right and wrong and that evil deserves to be punished. (gasps) But they suppress that. And it's our job, the ones who have concrete facts revealed in this word of God, allowing us to connect these facts to the general revelation of creation around us. It's our job to pull the blinders off of people's eyes and souls and to make the connections for them. And I feel like this is a little bit easier for Coloradans than it is for just about every other state in the Union. When you get up and you see that sun hit the tops of those mountains, when you walk through our valley, you see the wildlife and the beauty And you know who made all of that. It's our job to keep saying the truth over and over again to remind people around us in our town of what they are trying to suppress and have suppressed deep down inside to proclaim the good news of God to them because we know that's where the power for rescue lies, verse 16. And those are the words that will release the work of the Spirit of God so that they may understand as they are then given the mind of Christ to see, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and following. Do you believe that? That our words will release that into our town. Well, Paul now presses his argument for the righteous wrath of God, explaining that this suppression of the truth of God always leads to idolatry because man and women are made to worship. They're made, we are made to worship. an absent God, not believing in God, we will worship and believe in anything, no matter how insane it sounds. Verse 21 for though they knew god because of this creation it's declaring him they did not glorify him as god or show gratitude instead their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and four-footed animals and reptiles. When humanity doesn't see fit to recognize and worship God, God sees fit to simply let them go their own way. Maybe that response surprises you. Maybe you're thinking of the wrath of God and you're thinking kind of what you see in the First Testament, right? a God thundering and lightning and clouds atop Mount Sinai, a God opening the earth to swallow up everybody who's rebellious to him, a God raining down fire and hailstones, the signs of pickup trucks on Sodom and Gomorrah. But here in the Second Testament of our Bibles, Paul tells us that God's anger against sin and wickedness goes quietly and invisibly by handing sinners over to themselves operating not by God's intervention, but precisely by his not intervening, by letting men and women go their own way. God abandoning sinners to their willful self-centeredness and the resulting process of moral and mental and spiritual degeneration as the revelation of God's wrath from the heavenly realm. All of that is the revelation of God's wrath. So that there's... Their thinking is nothing but nonsense and worthlessness and the very core of who they are is marked by a senselessness, an inky darkness enveloping the core of their humanity and claiming to be wise, claiming to be wise, they actually have no basis whatsoever for that claim and instead trivialize themselves into dangerous silliness and utter confusion with no sense or direction left in their lives. Does this not describe our day? We live in a time with people spouting insanity, promoting insanity, legislating insanity. And nobody wants to stand up and declare that the emperor has no clothes. I heard this week of a mayor of one of the largest cities in our country, Getting a city council to pass an ordinance to supply $1,200 of free income per month for transgender people. Now, on the application to apply for this money, we're listed for you to choose from 187 genders. 187. There were genders listed that were alien genders, non-genders, and xenogender, which is a gender that cannot be contained by human understandings of gender, the unknown gender. Their thinking became worthless. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. There are not 187 genders. Why did this happen? Why is it happening in San Francisco? Because they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for false gods. Now, one of the implications of the doctrine of the wrath of God here explained is that I have found it this week to be a strangely comforting doctrine because it explains the world I live in. It explains the insanity and the confusion that grips the majority of my fellow countrymen. So that instead of gripping my hair between my fingers and going, what are people thinking? What are they doing? I look at this text and I see the whole... The whole good news of God explains it for me. His righteous wrath is being revealed on my country because the people of my country have largely rejected and denied the truth that my God is and that he reigns and that his instructions must be followed in order to actually live a life of flourishing. And when we reject God, this is what we get. A nation handed over to themselves living under the wrath of God. This is why his wrath is justified. Next, Paul describes how God responds in wrath. Namely, and he says it three times, God delivered them over, verse 24. God delivered them over, verse 26. God delivered them over, verse 28. In these next verses, Paul vividly paints a tragic picture of humanity's downward spiral spiral into chaos in essence god says if that's what you want that's what you get one of the most beautiful gifts that god has given to the men and women the men and women two genders who make up humanity is the gift of sexual intercourse inside the covenant, the covenant of marriage. From the very beginning of creation, this is why it's so important to understand the whole story, right? From the very beginning of creation, it was a man leaving his father and mother to bond with his wife, to become one flesh spiritually and ontologically, that is then signified by the most intimate parts of themselves fitting together like puzzle pieces to physically create and represent this one flesh reality continually as they have sex, ratifying the covenant of marriage that holds them together. It is sacred. It is a sacred thing. It is a holy moment. And act that transcends mere physicality. We must not re- reduce it to orgasm. It was designed by God and glorifies God in our bodies. So it should surprise, it should be. No surprise that this is where the evil one strikes to stain and pervert and distort the display of the image and glory of God that marks and could be displayed through us. It is no surprise, therefore, to me that Paul would call special attention and extended treatment of this damaging and devastating distortion of our humanity, which bears such deep and broad implications and effects on our common society. Verse 24. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. Do you do you hear the language of creation and fall? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Where did you, where have you heard that story? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve. Exchange the truth of God for the lie of the evil one. And we keep repeating their mistake. This is what all sin is. All sin is a rejection of and a disbelief in God. And this is where all sin finds its source. For the breaking of all the commandments finds its root in a breaking of the first. You shall have no other gods before me. Sexual impurity is an outgrowth of when humanity worships what has been created. When we worship our bodies and the sexual use of our bodies instead of the creator. And we see the wrath of God revealed in this way. In an over-sexualized, sexually immoral, sexually promiscuous, fornicating and adulterating American culture. A nation worshiping at the altar of sex and sexual expression, claiming freedom and liberty, but living in slavery and oppression. But there is yet another spiral down. Verse 26. For this reason, God delivered them over. There it is again. God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. This is a difficult text for many in our culture. Particularly those who suffer from the presence of sin in this world, listen closely now. This is difficult, particularly for those who suffer from the presence of sin in this world that manifests as a same-sex attraction that in most cases they did not ask for an attraction that they may not be able to explain and feel in their bodies deeply and genuinely, and that the Bible calls a temptation to sin. So this text is difficult for them. But while difficult, the word from God is simple and clear. Michael Bird. If we take Romans 1, 26 to 28, together with the other Pauline texts about the human body, it is clear that sexuality is intrinsic to human bodily existence. And that heterosexuality in particular was the divinely created order for humanity. Departments, departures from the norm Of God's creation represent defiance against the Creator and are indicative of a state of lostness. To suppress the truth about the one God who made the heavens and the earth invariably leads to a rejection of God's design for sex as a means of partnership and procreation between men. And women, Or as N.T. Wright comments, homosexual behavior is a distortion of the creator's design and such practices are evidence not of the intention of any specific individual to indulge in such practice for its own sake, but of the tendency within an entire society for humanness to fracture when gods other than the true one are being worshipped. This kind of sexual sin is a signal, a red signal blaring on the dashboard of a culture that they are as a whole worshiping idols and that it's God's given male and female order has fractured as a result. you know what breaks my heart almost as much as contemplating those that are in the grips of this particular temptation and resultant sin and who are therefore under the righteous wrath of God? you know what breaks my heart almost as much or more? It's people who claim to be Christians but act with cold indifference or worse, mocking, joke-making, rejection, or condemnation and abusive judgment towards those who struggle with this particular sin or the temptation of this particular sin. Where is the brokenhearted compassion, the welcome of Jesus, the expression of the grace of God, the proclamation of the forgiveness of sin and the restoration to wholeness that is found in the good news towards those who find themselves falling prey to the sin of homoerotic sexual expression. Where is all of that towards those who struggle with same-sex attraction? The temptation of that without acting upon it. Ask yourself if you have a category of acceptance for someone like that. Someone who struggles with this temptation just as you struggle with heterosexual lust and temptation to sin or with greed or lying or envy or jealousy or impatience and you're doing all you can not to act on those sins. There are people that I know, people that are friends of mine, people that are having a great impact for Jesus like pastor and author Sam Albury and Vaughn Roberts and Rosaria Butterfield and Rebecca McLaughlin who are struggling against this temptation to same-sex attraction and leaning on their communities of faith to help them. And it breaks my heart when I hear people too quickly and easily with hardly any thought, any putting ourselves of ourselves in their situation, how we say, in essence, to someone who suffers in this particular sin, just stop it. Just stop feeling that way. Just stop. (laughs) Really? How would you feel if someone told that to you about your particular besetting sin? How would you feel if someone was that dismissive and discompassionate about your struggle? Just stop it. Stop being envious. Just stop being impatient. Just stop being angry stop lusting. Just stop looking at porn. Just stop. What's wrong with you? Can we be more careful than that, family? This world needs us to be more careful and compassionate than that. This world And those in the grips of the particular sins represented on the LGBTQ plus spectrum do not need more condemnation from us. And they certainly do not need a vengeful attitude like was on horrific display in Colorado Springs. God forbid. Sinful wrath is opposed to God's wrath and God's command, as we read at the start of this sermon from Hebrews, Yahweh will judge his people, not us. Now, lest you think I'm getting soft on sin, let me be clear. The Bible and the God of the Bible and this world censures, forbids homosexual behavior. We must be clear about that. But God in his word does not condemn people for having what we would call a homosexual orientation, just like you are not condemned for having an envious, impatient, lustful, or gluttonous orientation, you are not condemned by God for temptation, but for when you allow that temptation to give birth to sin. James 1:15. Even Jesus himself was tempted in every way, but the glory of his righteousness is that he did not sin. Hebrews 4:15. Which makes him sympathetic towards all of us who struggle with whatever sin we struggle with. Isn't that fantastic? So God is not a homophobe. The good news is news of the grace of God and this grace is inclusive in a righteous way. It is open to everyone, men and women, Jew and Greek, black or white, Arab or American, gay or straight, bisexual or transsexual. It's open to all who struggle. And as my wife testified to this past evening, every single person may come to God as they are. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. We just sang. We have to know that we can come as we are. But what did Susan say after that? He loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. We want God to be righteous. We need God to be righteous. We need God to to apply the transforming power of his righteousness to every way in us that is dirty and stained and perverted and distorted to transform us in our character, in every part of our character and our sexuality. Every single person in this room is a sexual sinner. <laughs> if you don't believe that, you're lying to yourself. And we all need the forgiveness of God. So, can we be as welcoming as God? I, you know, it gets, it gets tricky, doesn't it? We hear language of affirming and we rankle at that. So why don't we just use here at Grace language of welcoming? Because this is a hospital, right? I mean, wouldn't we expect sick people to come here if it's a hospital? Aren't they the ones who need Jesus and not the righteous? Because family, we we all need this. We are all in equal need of the salvation of God based on the grace and kindness and long-suffering of God because as Paul now makes clear, there are a whole host of ways that we sinfully deny God such that none of us escapes guilt or wrath without his grace. He shows us the final spiral down into the chaos of sin now in verses 28 to 32. Let Let me again provide Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this final spiral down. Verse 28. Since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose. Rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering and cheating. Look at them, mean-spirited, venomous, fork-tongued God-bashers, bullies, swaggers, insufferable windbags. They keep inventing new ways of wrecking lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way, stupid, slimy, cruel, cold-blooded. And it's not as if they don't know better. They know perfectly well they're spitting in God's face, and they don't. Care Worse, they hand out prizes to those who do the worst things best. Paul defines sin as subhuman or non-human behavior. Deeds that are unfitting for humans to perform. That such people are full of all kinds of evil. It's, It's like we're were jugs to overflowing with noxious liquids ready to slosh over it at any moment. I look at that long paragraph by Paul and I don't think I can say it any better than Ron did this last week as we studied this passage together as elders and deacons. Yep. Yep. and God help us. So how should we then live? We have just scratched the surface of this text, which is merely the beginning of Paul's extended argument for how all of humanity is under sin. And there are so many ways that the truth revealed here might be applied to our lives, too many ways for me to cover in one Sunday morning. And actually, that's not my job anyway. I've told you this before. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. I can't possibly figure out how to apply this to all of your separate and uniquely created by God hearts, but I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will, that he'll do that in you. But you're gonna need to work with him, okay? Like I said at the very beginning, we, we need to come back to this text this week. So please read it again. Read chapter one, verse one, all the way to chapter three, verse 20. Read it prayerfully, expecting God to open your eyes to see things, ready to write down the things that the Spirit would reveal to you. Because if you walk out of here today and you do not think about this passage again until next Sunday, then it's very likely that this morning will be a waste of your time. I'd like to share in closing one thing that the Holy Spirit revealed to me this last week as I studied this passage and on to chapter 3. Probably to say it better would be one thing that he did in me. And it is that he broke my heart. Because I look around at our culture and our town and our state and our country. And I see a people to whom God has said, if that's what you want, that's what you get. A people whom God has quit bothering And he's letting them run loose and all hell is breaking loose upon their heads. And they are a people without excuse. And I'd like to say it breaks my heart, but I think it's just like a breaking has begun. Because I don't feel like even now, this morning, I've been praying about this for three days, like it's not broken deeply enough. I went on a hike yesterday morning, North Backbone, and I got to see like our entire valley and our city spread out below, like all these houses filled with people. I'm looking up at the sky and the mountains surrounding and I'm thinking this God is just pouring wrath down on them. And they're just like patients who don't know it. There's a diagnosis of cancer inside them and the scan hasn't been done yet. And they don't understand. I'm just praying, God, give me a bigger heart. Break my heart, because my life, the way I'm living it, isn't living in recognition that they're lost. I want more compassion. I'm standing here as your pastor telling you, I've got a problem. I don't have enough compassion for our town. I want Jesus' heart. When Jesus looked out on the crowds, he had compassion, splognizomai. It means for the, for the guts literally to react. His guts were torn up inside of him because he looked out at a people that was distressed and dejected because they had no shepherd. I want that kind of heart. I want God's heart who looked down on a world that was rejecting him and he loved it so much that he sent his one and only son to die. For the people in our town under his wrath, his wrath, he made a way. The wrath pouring out, God made a way of salvation by sending his son to absorb the full fury of his wrath so that we don't have to. But instead, if we believe in Jesus, we'll have life in this age. We'll have life in this age and in the age to come, eternally, in a new world. And you know why I want a heart like that for people under wrath? Because I was once one of them, <laughs> and so are you. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians: Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, worship team, would you come up? No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people. Ever been verbally abusive to someone even once? Or swindlers? None of those people will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but, Oh man, isn't it amazing that your life depends upon conjunctions? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our master Jesus, the Messiah, and by the spirit of our God. This is amazing grace. Amazing grace that once you were lost and a wretch, but you were found. (laughs) Found. You didn't find him. He found you running. Once was blind, but now I see. Amen. And thank you, Jesus.